there are these video games like Age of Empires and all where when you start the game you are uh, in the middle of a very small lighted area and there's darkness all around it and you keep expanding as the civilization expands you are expanding that bright area and then darkness keeps going away right I envision myself to be in somewhat of that category where um instead of a video game in the real life we are in the knowledge if you think about the global knowledge we are right at that boundary between what is known and what is unknown and we as scientists we get to push that boundary in all of these different topics so and that's something that i really find a lot of motivation from and i really enjoy that part science technology scientific discovery this is scivibe i'm super excited about today we get to spend some time with arun devaraj he's a senior research scientist in material science here at pnnl arun will have the opportunity to work inside the brand new energy science center a focal point for collaborative research among PNNL scientists, industry and partners. Arun, welcome to SciVibe. I'm I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Tell me what is your official title at PNNL? Is it material scientist? Yes, I am a material scientist in physical and computational science directorate. Okay, great. I want to start with something that came out of your research that I really enjoyed and it was a nature journal and scientific reports that showed a story about how ant teeth cut like a scalpel. Yes, really fascinating. I've been very excited to be a part of that research. It's actually through a collaboration with the University of Oregon uh, Robert Schofield. So many years ago he contacted me saying he has been following ant colonies and figuring out how leaf cutting ants teeth uh, might change as they age and how that enables them to cut Uh, leaves uh, as only after they grow up to a certain age and young ants cannot cut leaves in the beginning so he didn't know why exactly that is happening he had some theories and uh, he contacted me uh, knowing that i i work in the atomic scale can we find out this reason by using atom probe tomography it was a wild question and i was pretty <laughs> excited about learning more about his research and it turned out that he has done a lot of different types of testing mechanical testing of these teeth of ant to test how strong they are at different age and things like that and then uh, we agreed to meet uh, he brought me a, a cut a teeth of an ant from his lab and uh, the first time when i looked at it i really didn't know what i'll see so we we put it inside a focused ion beam instrument and we were able to really machine out a very small sample from the tip of a, an ant teeth that's so cool and we ran it in the atom probe and it really ran very well and we got a very good data set that showed the distribution of zinc present in the adult ant teeth uh, which was not there the zinc concentration was much slower or uh, almost not visible in the young ant teeth that way we figured out that wow this this makes a big difference so uh, yeah very excited about that research and we have we we currently also have that project ongoing and we are expanding into other materials now so interesting and then to come upon that discovery is just amazing and and ants in general are really fascinating creatures because they're so strong yes right yeah, yeah. so we, we can agree that materials are arranged at the atomic level can you tell me why that matters oh yeah so everything that we use in our life if you, even if you take our car side car right a uh, car has a lot of steel parts in it you you might have heard about the blacksmiths right everybody knows about what blacksmiths tools they heat in they they melt material and they cast a piece and then 
they would heat it to red hot temperature and then they leave it outside or they quench it in water depending upon how they treat it what happens is the atoms arrange rearrange themselves in specific ways to get a property so for example when you, if you want to make a, a sword uh, you need to choose not just iron but also some other elements that goes into that recipe uh, melt them together and then cast a piece and then once you heat it and shape it into a sword you don't want to leave it outside and let it cool you want to quench it in water so that atoms arrange to get this really strong property if you leave it outside and let it cool it may arrange differently and you may get a very soft sword which wouldn't work right and same principle applies to even our car automotive parts or uh, aeroplane parts a lot of these things that are made of metals you always need a specific arrangement of atoms in that to get the property that you need and uh, this is an exciting area of research also we really try to understand all these how do you modify the atom arrangement by heating cooling and deforming things differently so first thing is to have that understanding on the processing and then the second thing is to really know how it change that's where advanced microscopy comes into picture you really need to see how the arrangement of atoms changed so you need very very high magnification microscopes that can see individual atoms in materials okay interesting since we're on the topic of metals can you tell me a little bit about how you're assessing the structural soundness of metals proposed to carry hydrogen for our future green economy yes hydrogen is an interesting element it's one of the most abundant element in the universe it's highly diffusive actually so if you have if you try to uh, flow hydrogen through a pipeline for example there is a high chance that hydrogen can diffuse into the steel that is making that pipeline so once hydrogen goes into the structure then it can essentially make the steel weaker uh, through what is known as hydrogen embrittlement uh now there has been a lot of ongoing research over several decades uh, that was targeted in understanding how this happens how does hydrogen weaken the steel now there are many different uh, mechanisms that are known but one thing that happened over the last few decades is that there has been many powerful uh, microscopes that has been developed to really target this question one of them is atom probe tomography which has unique ability to map out hydrogen distribution in materials at a nanoscale resolution in 3d we have that capability and what we also have is a cryogenic fib so i told you that hydrogen diffuses out of material very fast yes even if you charge hydrogen into a material if you take it out and leave it outside the hydrogen can diffuse out uh, so what we need to do is you charge hydrogen and then immediately quench it in liquid nitrogen and then freeze the hydrogen in place and then keep it in that cold temperature so that you can then just transfer it across all these different platforms of microscopes that way you can really identify where hydrogen lo- was located without losing it so we have such capabilities here wow that's really great another unique capability we have is we can load hydrogen into a material and then you can poke at that material or uh, make small pillars and compress it uh, in inside our microscope and we can watch the deformation change real time uh, so that's another cool capability we have in pnl yes so all of these are really powerful for understanding how hydrogen changes the behavior of these steels which 
are important for transferring hydrogen over long distances through pipelines. So that's that's the connection. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense now. So why is this work so important? So the world is now faced with a lot of issues regarding uh, global climate change, right? There's an increased uh, CO2 emission going on. And uh, right now, across the world, uh, there is a big push on transforming all of the energy landscape to go to more green hydrogen-based economy. That's one of the options. Uh, there's also obviously electric vehicles and uh, renewable energy getting integrated. Uh, you have seen the increasing adoption of electric vehicles. These are all driven by the need to have cleaner air and less forest fires and things like that. Uh, and industrial changes and uh, foundational changes that we can do in how we produce energy and how we use that energy can really make some lasting impact for the coming generations. So... Specifically for that hydrogen economy, we are trying to look at all the relevant technical barriers that we need to overcome to kind of facilitate that smooth transition to that hydrogen economy. That's why all of this research is important. That's such a great answer. Thank you so much. Wasn't your first job working for a steel mill? Can you tell me about that? Did that sort of light your fire in materials? Yeah, that is exactly true. So right after my undergrad, I worked in a big integrated steel plant in India. And uh, my duty was quality control and quality assurance of steel making. And we had three giant electric arc furnaces and uh, two continuous casters. And these are giant furnaces, which are bigger than our the room that we typically are used to. And they melt almost uh, 150 ton of steel per hour. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah. These are very big, massive facilities. Once we melt it, then it gets casted into these giant slabs. Each slab is almost, it's actually bigger than a queen mattress of solid steel. (laughs) That's quite a visual. And then it gets rolled in between these giant rolls to make these thin sheets. And those thin sheets are what goes into finally becoming things like car side panel of the door side panel of the car, right? So my work was in the steel melting and continuous casting uh, area for figuring out are the composition of the steel that is being made accurate according to the grade. And then sometimes trying to figure out if some problem occurs during the processing, where that problem came from, which at which stage of the processing came from. Uh, and if, if, if we send a steel sheet to a company and that company finds a defect in it that, in that steel, they will come back to us, try to find out where that issue came from. So then I would, I would chase after that problem using electron microscopes and try to figure out where exactly that came from. But that definitely really instilled an interest in going into the fundamentals of the atomic scale world. Um, that's why I'm here probably today, honestly. <laughs> that's such a great story and, and such a cool beginning. What do you think about working in the new ESC and, and what are your hopes for future research with, uh, you know, maybe some interdisciplinary or what do you envision? Since I joined PNL in 2011, until now my office was in MCEL and most of my labs were in MCEL. Oh, yeah. So Environmental Molecular Sciences Laboratory. EMSL is a Department of Energy Office of Science user facility sponsored by the Biological and Environmental Research Program. Yes, uh, EMSL is a fantastic facility, uh, but uh, now we have the Energy Science Center. A lot of our PCSD colleagues are all moving into the Energy Science Center. Uh, one exciting thing for me is this co-location of experimentalists and computational scientists. 
oftentimes we were kind of scattered all across the lab and we didn't have coffee conversations or water cooler conversations honestly very excited about that fact and we also have some really good capabilities that are coming up in the ESC building we have a new plasma focused ion beam system with the cryogenic transfer capability that'll be really powerful for looking at the hydrogen issue that i talked about that is that is currently uh, getting installed and it will be operational within a few weeks time frame now and then we have also potential to kind of cross this in uh, this individual boundaries of research and talk with scientists from diverse areas and i'm pretty sure that that will lead to a lot of interesting proposals and new research projects that we probably couldn't have envisioned before so uh, this whole idea of collaboration seems to be the most exciting part for me for uh, esc Beautifully stated. And, you know, around those coffee, tea, water conversations, it seems that's where scientific discovery is sometimes born. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. Arun, what inspires you? Okay, that's a heavy, heavy loaded question, right? (laughs) 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 I would say two things. I mean, there are multiple angles to this, say, this, this answer. One is understanding how nature works right so uh, we started our conversation from how ant teeth is as strong as it is right right that is essentially this idea that nature is a wizard of its own and it has its own way of solving a lot of problems and creating natural materials for all these complicated environments and there's a lot to learn from nature right so that really fascinates me where you take these kind of intricate structures or miniature tools that animals use and look at atomic scale and understand how can they do what they can do and what atoms are there how are they located and things like that uh, one benefit is if you understand that then you can transfer that to synthetic models i mean you can make materials that are engineered to be having that similar structure that's a really fascinating field so i, I enjoy that part quite a lot the other part is the entire humanity is constantly evolving and scientific innovations are an important part of it our iphone when you think of miniaturizing all of that computer power that is now in iphone there was a lot of research that went into it right what we are doing today as scientists are defining the future for our humanity as a whole right i really enjoy being at the boundary of what is known and unknown I don't know if how many people are familiar with this. There are these video games like Age of Empires and all where when you start the game you are uh, in the middle of a very small lighted area and there's darkness all around it. And you keep expanding as the civilization expands you are expanding that bright area and then darkness keeps going away, right? I envision myself to be in somewhat of that category where um instead of a video game in the real life we are in the knowledge if you think about the global knowledge we are right at that boundary between what is known and what is unknown and we as scientists we get to push that boundary in all of these different topics so and that's something that i really find a lot of motivation from and i really enjoy that part what a great analogy i like that and i know the game you speak of so that helped <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great way of looking at things and you know, seeing the world in a different way, seeing the world through the atomic lens, you understand how much there is that we can learn from it. Yes, exactly. What do you do to get away from it all? 
I have been very much into backpacking and hiking. My wife is also into backpacking. So we used to go on these uh, secluded hikes or backpacking for five days in uh, the forests of Pacific Northwest. That was really fun. And then last four years, I started doing mountaineering. We are lucky to have a number of glacier-covered high mountains in Pacific Northwest. We have a fantastic local hiking club. So they have this mountaineering a month long or two month long course. They used to train this and I went through that course. And then as a graduation, I climbed Mount Hood uh, in uh, Portland. Uh, wow, good for you. That's really incredible. So <laughs> that was really intense, but I really enjoyed it. It was really cold that night, but going through this, there's an area known as uh, Devil's Kitchen where uh, you have all these fumaroles uh, that is putting sulfurous fumes out. Uh, it, uh, after that, there is this area known as Pearly Gates, which is actually really icy and steep. Going through all that and when you reach the top, I mean, I had tears in my eyes. It was spectacular view. <laughs> That's incredible. Standing on the summit. I mean, I have seen Mount Hood so many times every time when I drive from here to uh, Portland. But standing on the summit of it, was a different feel, you know, and... <laughs> yes, you know, I mean, I can only imagine. And looking down on the rest of the world, right? So that was kind of like a very interesting perspective difference. And now, and that changed my perspective about all the mountains. And I haven't summited the mountain here yet, but that's in my list for uh, near future. That's just wonderful. Yeah, I, I enjoy doing the mountaineering. That's so great. Well, I just have this vision of you at the top of Mount Hood and how moving that would be. And it's, it's very inspiring. Yeah, yeah, and it's actually, uh, when you are climbing a mountain, it's pretty brutal uh, because you are really, you push to your limit, right? Because you typically start at midnight or uh, really late night. Uh, and then we are reaching the summit by like morning 7 a.m. You are continuously hiking up and it's cold, it's very steep and you have to be safe, you have to be careful and then you have to walk all the way back, right? So uh, they say that Going up is optional, coming down is not, right? So uh, <laughs> so there is, uh, it is really pushing yourselves to your limit. It's a lot of determination that comes into picture. And I mean, it's an interesting, uh, and it is definitely addictive. Once you do one of them, you really want to do the next one. Um, but the interesting thing is next time when you are climbing again, you are thinking like, why did I do, why did I decide to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, yes. But once you finish the climb, you feel great because, or when you stand on the summit, you feel amazing, you know? And, and sometimes, I mean, I have, I've experienced the sunrise while I'm climbing a mountain and, uh, Oh, you see what is known as a mountain shadow. I don't know if you know mountain shadow. No. If you're climbing on one face of the mountain and the sunrise is on the other side of the mountain, you see this beautiful sharp shadow of mountain uh, in front of you. I can send you a picture of it. It's, it's amazing. Actually, some of these scenes are like so surreal and so unique that, I mean, in my entire life, I haven't seen something like that kind of a thing. So that's what keeps me drawn into that again and again. And, you know, there's this sense of people that meditate or do different things to sort of leave the mind and something like hiking from what you describe or mountain climbing that it sort of forces that and it's a natural thing, right? That you don't have time to think about other problems or anything, really. You just 
Exactly. And you have to concentrate and be careful. And then when you get up there and you have this, it's a moment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually a very interesting point. I mean, so that one aspect. So as researchers, when we are doing a lot of different, different research, we have a lot of things to think about. Okay, next proposal that I need to write or next publication that I need to publish and many other things. But mountaineering is one thing where, yeah, you cannot afford distracted mind. You need to focus on that, right? And uh, that that's another, there's another interesting thing. Like I, I practice karate uh, in an organization known as Shotokan Karate of America. And uh, my teacher was this, one of this fantastic uh, black belt, uh, Pam Logan. And we used to have this conversation that karate is another form of meditation uh, because if I am facing her, and she is punching directly to my face. I cannot afford to think about anything else, and I, I better focus on it. Otherwise, I'm getting punched. So, <laughs> so these kind of ways of actually forceful meditation, right? And sometimes almost you are really focusing. You're pushing your mind to focus on one thing and don't distract anything, and that really helps actually in some sense. Yeah, I love it, and I think it sort of clears the pipe, if that makes sense. Exactly. In, in that, once you do that, you know, and you do come back to your work, say on that. Monday and you're fresh aren't you you're ready and then you know the soil is all cleared and you can start planting your seeds again and you know you, your thinking is a little bit more in touch with who you are exactly yeah I think creativity requires that break that productive breaks where you focus on something else and then there are a lot of analogs analogs too right I mean when sometimes when we are in a very difficult project and we are trying to really achieve a goal by a certain deadline you need a lot of determination. You need a lot of drive. I've had some projects where I had to basically continuously work until uh, like two days or so without a sleep. So for example, I go to these synchrotron beam lines, which are these giant X-ray facilities in Argonne National Lab and other places. Uh, And we get this short time of experiments for two continuous days, so 48 hours. And we need to run as many experiments as we can in that time. And there's a lot of similarity in how we approach a mountaineering expedition and how we do research there because you are essentially compromising on the sleep and you know that, okay, you need to get as much result as possible. And we really push hard there. And when you do these kind of hard things like mountaineering, uh, then it might, these part a lot more easier. At least you are safely sitting in a chair and doing the research and trying to go up a steep mountain. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this has been really fun. Thank you so much. I've wanted to talk to you since I came to the lab and I'm glad we had a chance to finally get to know each other a little bit. Thank you, Nick. Thanks a lot. This is great. I hope to continue chatting with water coolers and other places once you're back to lab. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.